This student ministry podcast is a sermon preached by Pastor Kurt Skelly at the 2009 West Coast Baptist Youth Conference. Pastor Skelly is the senior pastor of the Harvest Baptist Church in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. We pray this message will be a blessing to you. For more sermon resources, visit preaching.lancasterbaptist.org. I attended a public high school, a public middle school, I should say. I went to a Christian school from 9th grade through 12th grade, but up until the 8th grade, I went to public school. How many go to public school? Would you raise your hand up good and high? All right, many of you. And in my public school, they had, uh, in 6th grade, a series of classes called Introduction to Art. Introduction to Art is part of the curriculum. So a person needed to go to six weeks of every area that they labeled art in our school. For instance, they labeled sewing as an art. Sewing is not an art, but they labeled it as an art. So I had to go to sewing class for six weeks. The only thing I learned in sewing class is that you could take the the outside of a pen, take a needle, thread thread through that needle and cut it like it's a little dart, put it in the cartridge of that pen and blow darts at people. That's what I learned in sewing class. We would hide that in our pocket and look for fat kids and say, there she blows! ah, That's what I learned in sewing class. Then we moved on to cooking class. Cooking is not an art. I would prefer a class on how to make lots of money so you don't have to cook. You can go out and eat. But they didn't have that class, so I went to cooking class. And uh, I, 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 we had a team of four. You got to choose your team. Now, it, looking back, I should have chosen some girl that knew how to cook, but I chose three of my buddies, none of whom could cook. And so we would make things like cookies in cooking class. You would think that would be pretty easy. But we'd make cookies, and we ran out of time in cooking class to make cookies, so we decided we'd make one big cookie. So we took all the dough and just mashed it down on the, and put it in the oven, and what came out was cookie soup. So everyone else is eating their nice little Toll House cookies, and we're spooning ourselves, you know, a warmed up batter. So that was cooking class. Then we went to metalworking class, which was kind of fun, except the teacher was, like, from Nazi Germany. I mean, he was, honestly, his name was Mr. Zewissa, and he was very, very strange, and he even had a German accent, and I always felt as if I were in a concentration camp. Okay, boys and girls, (laughs) we are going to have a metalworking class right now, and if you don't listen, I'm going to chop off your fingers. (laughs) I mean, he was strange. So I just laid low in that class. And then we went to woodworking class for six weeks. Enjoyed that. I, 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 made, my, I made my mommy a jewelry box in, in woodworking class for, for my mom. I made that for her. All the girls are like, aw. All the guys are like, man, you are a wimp. <laughs> but Actually, I, I made two projects. You're going to love this. I made, a, I made a jewelry box for my mom... And then I made back... Now, you have to understand, I was in sixth grade in 1976. And so uh, we made what was called a light box. Back in those days, disco was real big. Now, I was unsaved, okay? I had, like, hair down to here. I I made a disco box, 
You know, so I was like the disco man, you know, I got the light box going on. So I made a disco box and I made my mother a jewelry box. Then we went to uh, what was called just general art class. And there were two teachers for that class, Miss Barry and Mr. Fabian. And the, one of the first areas of art class was working with clay, making what they called a people mug. You had to make a mug and then put a face on the mug and I had it for years, and then I thought, that's a dorky-looking mug, and I got rid of it. But uh, it was a, a people mug, and uh, Mr. Fabian was a uh, really uh, skilled potter. I didn't even know that people still did, did stuff like that. And I'll never forget that day when he gave everybody in class a big lump of clay. It was wrapped in plastic, and you took that plastic off, and, you know, I, I always like to play with Play-Doh, so I'm thinking, this is great, but the clay was like massively hard. And he said, just work with this clay a little bit. And we're all like hitting it, stomping it, jumping on it, throwing it at other kids. And kids are going to the hospital. And it's crazy with this clay. And then I remember Mr. Fabian taught us what it takes to do something special with clay. I'll never forget that lesson. He taught us what it takes to do something special with clay. In Jeremiah chapter 18, the people of God are far from God. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar has already come in and taken captive men like, uh, or boys like Daniel and Hanani, Mishael and Azariah. Now a second time he's come, and this time he's taken a few others like Ezekiel and some of the middle class people. And Jeremiah and some people are still back in, in, in Judah, and Jeremiah's preaching his heart out, but nobody's listening. And Jeremiah's trying to tell the people, even though you've wandered far from God, and even though God's got to chastise you, God can still do something with your lives. And I would say this this morning, and you might have made some mistakes, and you might have, uh, you might have even sinned in a big, egregious way, but I can tell you this, God can do something with your life. God can reform clay. And in the Bible, when God talks about the house of Israel in the Old Testament, a good New Testament example is the New Testament individual is typified by the Old Testament nation of Israel. So when God speaks of Israel in the Old Testament, we can make some applications to our lives in the New Testament. Whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And so as we look at Jeremiah 18, we ought to see ourselves. And understand that, that our lives are clay. That's what you are. You are a hunk of clay. Now, that doesn't mean, guys, you're a hunk you're a hunk of clay. When God formed Adam, he formed him out of the dust of the ground. We might say that God made Adam out of dirt. That's what clay is. Clay is dirt. And God, the only thing good about anybody's life is what God can do with your life. That's the only thing good about it. Without God, you're just a hunk of dirt. Just a hunk of clay. And yet the Bible promises that God wants to do something so significant with your life that people would look at your life and have to understand that was God because you could not do that. And so this morning, I'd like to give you four principles about how to be a valuable vessel. Four principles about how to be a valuable vessel. How can God work in my life? Where I can stand before Jesus Christ one day and know that my life counted. 
Because the sad fact is this, that there are many in this room, and yes, I said many, and that's lamentable, but there are many in this room this morning whose lives will not count for Jesus Christ. There are people in this room that if Jesus Christ does not come back in my lifetime, which I believe he will, but if Jesus Christ does not come back, there are people in this room, and probably even many teenagers in this room that will get to the end of their lives... And look back and say, my life was one big colossal zero for Jesus Christ. Even though maybe you're saved, even though maybe you know that you're on your way to heaven, your life is going to be one big fat zero. Because you don't understand the principles we're going to talk about this hour. So I want you to listen. What must be true in our lives if we are going to be valuable vessels? Number one, if you're taking notes, I want you to write down this word, master. Write down this word, master. If I'm going to be a valuable lesson, a valuable vessel rather, in in my life, then I'm going to have to understand that there must be a master to whom I yield who will form my life. See, the greatest problem that we have, not just among teenagers, but among Christians in general, is that we like to take the steering wheels of our lives. We like to drive ourselves. The other day, I was out with a, a man that's visiting our church. He took us out to a, to a driving range, to a, a rather a rifle range. I'm not a, a gun shooter, but this guy is a national champion, a rifle shooter, marksman. He shoots targets from 1,000 yards. That's, a, that's over a half a mile away. So we went out shooting. And he taught me how to shoot. And I mean, I'm hitting birds and cows and horses. And I'm, you know, but anyway, we're out there and having a good time. The way the rifle range works is one person has to operate the target. You're behind this big cement wall and you're putting the target up and down. The other person's out there. And you're talking on walkie-talkies. So after he shot for a while, he said, okay. He goes, uh, why don't you come down and do some shooting? I'll send the boys down to you. I said, okay. Now, I had my, my Ford Expedition was down there with him. So I'm just assuming he's going to drive his son back down to me. His son is in fifth grade. Much to my shock and despair, about five minutes later, up the road comes this fifth grader driving my expedition. I mean, you can't even believe. He's holding the wheel like this. He's looking over like this. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> I've got my other son who's like four years older than, than he. He's sitting in the pastor's side saying, Dad, I don't know what he was thinking, but I'm not going to say anything. I'm afraid that many of us are like fifth graders trying to steer the wheel. Many of us are like those, uh, those uh, chase videos you watch on the cop television programs. Some kid gets hopped up on drugs and steals a car and wrecks it. Listen, you're going to wreck your life if you hold on to the steering wheel. You're going to wreck your life if you think you know what's going on. You don't know what's going on. You need a master in your life. Without a master, you don't have a plan. Without a master, you don't have a purpose. Mr. Fabian hands us that clay, says, make something out of this. I didn't know what I was doing. I start shoving my thumb in that clay. I try to make a, a little head out of that clay. I can't do anything with clay. I'm not the master. I have no clue what I'm doing. By the way, the master has a plan for your life. Say, what's your plan for your life? Well, I don't know. I might get a job this summer. We don't have a plan for our lives. And even if you're one of those unusual teenagers in 10th grade that has your life all mapped out and what you're going to do and where you're going to go and who you're going to marry and all that stuff, you still don't have a clue about your life. 
Only one person has a clue about your life, and he's the only person that can see the future, and his name is Jesus Christ. And you need to submit to the master in your life. The Bible says, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son. And God has a purpose for your life. And that purpose is that you'll be just like Jesus Christ. And guess what? You don't know what Jesus Christ looks like, but God does. And God's purpose for your life is to make you just like Jesus. And you've got to submit to the master. Let him form your life. Otherwise, you'll just be one big hunk of clay. What's amazing? Without the master, clay is nothing. You can take the clay out on the ground out here in the, the Lancaster area. Guess what? That clay is just formed by the circumstances. Some big old cow walks by and steps in that clay. There's a big hoof print in the clay. Some big rainstorm comes and runs down that clay. There's a little rivulet in that clay. See, without a master... Without somebody to take that clay and form something out of it, all you are is a product of your circumstances. That's all you are. And I'm afraid that many, increasingly, alarmingly more teenagers that are saved in fundamental churches are simply the product of their circumstances. The Bible says, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And what I'm saying is that most people are allowing the world's image to be stamped upon their life. You got to look like everyone else. You got to act like everybody else. You got to make sure you know the latest music and the latest dress and the latest style. And listen, away with all that. What does the master want? What's God's plan for my life? There ought to be a burning, insatiable desire in your heart this morning to say, I don't want to miss it. I want to find out what it is that God has for my life. And I'm going to spend some time alone and on my knees and seeking God and out in the woods and away from my friends. I I just want to know who God is in my life. Who is the master? You say, well, Brother Skelly, I'm not the athlete, and I'm not the senior class president, and I'm not the popular one. I don't sing in the singing groups. Listen, God doesn't need your athleticism or your musical ability or your talent or your intellectualism. God just wants an available young person to say, God, I want to know you. God will do something with your life. You have to understand that your life is about one purpose, and that is the master. That's what your life's all about. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. I have one goal in life. I want to know Jesus Christ. I want to know the master. What is your one goal in life? I mean, what makes you tick? Why do you get up in the morning and what are your aspirations and dreams? Do they include Jesus Christ? Are they all about Jesus Christ? You'll never be a valuable vessel until, first of all, you come with that spirit of virtue Lord, whatever you have for me, wherever you have for me, whomever you have for me, Lord, wherever, whatever, whoever, Lord, I'm yours. I want to do it your way. You're the master. I'm the slave. You're the master. I'm the servant. I want to do it your way, Jesus. It starts with that. We have this idea, Lord, if you'll just show me some of your plans, I'll approve or reject them. Don't expect for God to show you anything. Lord, if you'll just kind of give me a snippet about what my future's all about, then maybe, just maybe, Lord, just tell me, am I going to be a missionary? Am I going to be a, uh, am I going to be a, a preacher? Am I going to be an engineer? Lord, just show me what I'm going to do, and then I can approve or reject it. Listen, that's not the way God normally works. 
We come to youth conferences and we want to come forward and make a decision about what we're going to do in 10 years. God's not concerned about what you're going to do in 10 years. He's concerned about what you do today. We have too many teenagers that are surrendering to go to China 15 years from now. They ought to surrender to clean their rooms tomorrow. I'm just saying that it's all about making right decisions and understanding that we live in the presence of the master. It's all about the master. Write down number two this morning. My life is going to be a valuable vessel. I'm going to have to understand that there's a master. But then I'm going to have to understand this concept, the concept of the middle. The middle, M-I-D-D-L-E. The master, the middle. You know what's interesting? When I was in that class with Mr. Fabian, and he gathered all of us sixth graders around, and he sat at this wheel, just an old-fashioned potter's wheel. It was the old kind where one needed to pump the pedal in order to make that wheel spin. And he sat on a stool, and he pumped that pedal, and that wheel began to spin around. And he took that hunk of clay, all of us had a lump, and he took his, and he pumped that wheel, and he took that hunk of clay, and he threw it right down on that wheel. And guess where he threw that clay? He threw it right down in the middle of that wheel. Now, why in the world would you think that he would put that clay in the middle of the wheel? I mean, after all, it's a big wheel. It's not a hard target to hit. I mean, why not just throw that clay anywhere on that old wheel? I mean, what difference does it make? As long as I'm uh, on the wheel, isn't that all that matters? Oh, no, no. It's not being on the wheel that matters. It's being in the middle of the wheel that matters. Because if the clay is not in the middle of the wheel, then the forces of centripetal force and centrifugal force Say, Brother Skelly, tell me the difference. I don't know. One pushes out, one pushes in. If you know the difference, you're way too geeky for me, okay? But what happens is if that clay is not in the middle, then as that wheel spins around, what is inevitably going to happen to that clay? Talk to me. It's going to what? Fly off. The faster that wheel spins... The more centrifugal force is generated, the more likely that clay is to lose its friction with the wheel and fly off that wheel. And we've got too many teenagers in youth groups that are flying off the wheel. Too many teenagers in in, um, local churches that are flying off the wheel. Too many teenagers graduated from high school that don't darken the door of the church when they leave. They've flown off the wheel. Now why? They weren't in the middle. They hung around the edges and the fringes of the youth group and the edges and the fringes of the will of God just did enough to get by. You'll never stay. You'll never stay on the wheel if that's your attitude. Remember as kids, we used to love to go down to the local playground. Now, in modern playgrounds, everything is mandated by code to be safe and it's made out of plastic and there's all kinds of safety fences. When I grew up, they just put metal things up in the air and you climbed on them. That's the way it was back in the 1920s and 30s. I mean, we just climbed on things. And I remember at our playground when they installed what to us was like an amusement park ride. 
they installed the merry-go-round. You know what I'm talking about? Those that you run around and spin. And of course, we would always like to take the smallest kid in the neighborhood that we could beat up and bully. We'd like to say, hey, do you want to ride? And the kid would go, yeah. And we'd put them on that merry-go-round. We'd start spinning that merry-go-round and spinning it and spinning it faster and faster until finally the kid's got this wild look in his eyes and he's holding on. Ah! And his legs are flying up and eventually what does he do? He flies off. Much to our delight. That's the way centrifugal force works. I remember the first time I ever went to a big amusement park. It's called Six Flags in, in Connecticut now, but back then it was called Riverside Amusement Park. Actually, Ag- Agawam, Massachusetts. And we went to Riverside Amusement Park. And at Riverside, they had a, a ride called the Rotor. The Rotor. And the way the rotor worked, and you might have been on a ride like that, I'd go on none of these rides anymore ever. I'd go on roller coaster, period. That's it. Spinning rides make me sick. You'll learn that too when you get up in years. And so I went on this ride called the rotor. And the way the rotor worked was this. And I didn't know. No one had told me. The way the rotor worked is you'd get in this little room, this round room. You know what I'm talking about? You stand against the wall. And it starts spinning. Faster and faster and faster and faster and faster. Then they take the floor away. The floor goes down. And you're plastered against the wall. No one told me that. Like, I didn't know that was going to happen. So it's going faster. And the floor's going. I'm saying, ah! I thought I was like in the abyss. So I started crying. Well, this, this, yes, I did. I was only 37. But uh, so this lady next to me is feeling bad for me. So she's reaching over. She goes, I got you. Well, she didn't. I mean, the wall had me. But she's grabbing me like this. I'm thinking, oh, she's such a kind lady. Will you marry me? But uh, there she was. And hey, there's a good way to pick up a chick. Anyway, so there she, there she was. To make matters worse, about three guys over, there's this big heavyset guy. And he's getting sick. And he's saying, oh, no. Oh, no. And I'm thinking, okay, you know, guys throw up. So he does. He goes, Now remember how centrifugal force works. It forces objects to the outside of the circle. So he threw up that way, and immediately the laws of physics said, Oh no, I don't think so. And that vomit went right back in his face which caused him to be nauseated and caused him to vomit again. This time he learned and he turned his head this way so that these people could now enjoy the benefits of centrifugal force. Brother Skelly, what are you saying? I'm saying stay in the middle or you get full of vomit. (laughs) But here's the principle, watch this. You know, when you just decide in your life, that you're going to quit bucking the rules. When you just decide that you're going to just get involved and you're not going to try to push the envelope. I want to be in the middle. I want to be in God's word. I want to be involved in the youth group. I don't want to be on the edges. I want to be right. I want to do, Lord, I want everything you have for me. I'm following my parents and my pastor and my youth leaders and I'm just going to do it their way and I'm going to get smack dab in the middle of God's will. What you find out is the force that causes others to fly off is the force that will hold you in. 
That's an amazing thing. What's amazing is you can see young people. What, what happens is life always spins. You know that. I mean, situations and circumstances come. I mean, God doesn't work on your life in freeze frame. You come to youth conference, God says, okay, I'm going to stop your life. Then he comes over and picks you up, fashions you, puts you back in. Go. Oh, it doesn't work that way. No, God works on your life as you're in motion. And what happens is your life spins and sometimes you come from a divorced home. And the situations spin, and sometimes uh, you have people that turn against you, and sometimes uh, uh, you, you have something that goes wrong in your life physically, or maybe somebody that, that rejects you relationally. Bad things happen, and your life begins to spin and spin and spin. And if you're not in the middle of God's will, those situations can, can, can destroy your life. But if you're in the middle of God's will, like three Hebrew boys in a fire pit, like a Daniel on a lion's den or like a Jesus on a cross or like a Stephen standing when rocks are flying. You can stand right in the middle of it. Why? Because God will hold you in if you're in the middle of his will. Master, middle, write down this third word. Not only do I need to understand the control of the master if I'm going to be a valuable vessel and then the fact that I must be in the middle in order to be safe in God's will. But understand, number three, the word motion. The word motion. Write that down. I'll explain what I mean. The word motion. See, what I found as Mr. Fabian took that clay and slapped it down in the middle of that wheel, what I found is that he had already begun pumping that pedal. That wheel was already turning round and round. And when that clay landed on the middle of that wheel, the master had the clay in the middle, but that wheel was in motion. And what I learned was this, that unless that wheel is in motion, so that when that potter can take his graving tool, or take his finger, or take those skilled hands, and wrap them around that clay, unless that wheel is in motion, nothing of value can happen to that clay. The wheel must be in motion. Say, Brother Skelly, what are you saying? I'm saying this, that God is not in the business of forming a life that is sedentary. What I mean by that is God is not in the business of forming a life where you're just sitting still. See, I'm afraid that many teenagers have this attitude toward God. Okay, God, here I am. In the yoga position... Oh, man, I can't do that. God just never speaks to me. I mean, I'm willing to go wherever he wants me to go. I'll, I'll be a missionary to China if he wants me to be. But God just never seems to speak to me like other people. That's because why would he speak to you? Why would God ever... Why would God ever take somebody who's doing nothing and send them to the place of his will to do nothing? You ever hear this axiom in business? Busy people get busier. Ever hear that? That's a true, that's true in life. At our church, if I really want a project to get done, guess who I give it to? 
Somebody who's already busy. Because there's a reason why the person that's not busy isn't busy. Because he's probably lazy. And there's a reason why busy people are busy. Because they're probably not lazy. And God looks at your life and says, are you doing all that you can do for me? And your job in life is not to figure out tomorrow. Your job is to obey everything you know to do that's right today. He that, him that knoweth to do good and doeth it not, to him it's sin. See, I'm afraid that too often in our youth groups, in our youth conferences, we're preaching on all the sins of commission. Some of you smoking cigarettes out there. <laughs> Taking some drugs. Some of you on the wrong site on the internet. <laughs> it's sin. And listen, that's good. That's a good message. I'm not against preaching against bad things we do. But you know, God didn't make you not to do things. You realize that? That's not the purpose of your creation. God didn't create you so that you wouldn't do things. Some of you Pharisees that look down at others that maybe have gotten involved in sin, you think you're all that? Yeah, you're about as spiritual as this microphone, my, my, this mic, this, whatever this is. <laughs> my homeboy here. <laughs> Life is not about what you don't do. Life's about what God formed you and created you to do. What are you not doing? Hey, how's your Bible reading going? Hmm? How's that uh, personal time when you spend time all alone with Jesus Christ? Uh, oh, yeah? You too. Wow. Let me ask this question. What about that kid that you know you're supposed to witness to that you haven't? Hmm? What about that kid in geometry class sits right behind you every day? You've not even talked to him one time. Oh, you're a good Christian. Yeah, you're a good Christian. You're a mighty testimony for Christ. Well, I'm coming to youth conference. I hope God shows me who I'm supposed to marry. Hope God tells me what I'm supposed to do with my life. Hey, God's already told you what you're supposed to do with your life. You're supposed to be in His Word every day. You're supposed to be on your knees every day. You're supposed to be telling other people about Jesus Christ. You ought to be a servant at home with your mom and dad. There's a million things He's already told you. Get busy doing that. Get in motion. God will change your life. You become a valuable vessel. One last thought and we'll be done. We saw the Master... We saw the middle, right? We saw the motion, but don't miss this. There's one other element, Mr. Fabian included. Mr. Fabian, ready? He's the master. Pumping that wheel, there's the motion. Here's the clay. In the middle. Hey, we're all set. Could I make a nice vase? Could I make a nice mug? Going to make a nice ornamental dish. Everything's in place. Oh no, one thing's missing. What I noticed Mr. Fabian did, every couple of seconds, he took his hand and he dipped it over here in water. You know why? 
Because if the clay is not moldable, it's no good. No, I'm in the middle. I'm serving Jesus. I believe the master is in charge of my life and I'm doing all that I can do. Yeah, but you're so rigid. You're so hard. You're not moldable. And God wants your heart to be at a moment's notice. Lord, whatever you have, and I'll change directions. I'll go anywhere, do anything. Lord, I'm completely submissive to any direction you have. I'm listening. We ought to be so close to God that God doesn't have to bring a a youth speaker up at a youth conference and tell a funny story or preach a hard message. We ought to be so close to God that all by ourselves we can hear the still, small voice of Jesus Christ every day. Thank you for listening to this Student Ministry 127 podcast. For more sermon resources, visit preaching.lancasterbaptist.org. And for information about West Coast Baptist College, visit wcbc.org. Dot edu.